names are next door to one another, and I trade them pretty indiscriminately. <laughs> I am a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. I also have a four-year-old daughter who gave me her cold about three or four days ago, and um, I'm awfully happy to be here, so I've got enough Hall's mentholiptus, I think, to get me through the hour. Then I'm going to go home and beat her. <laughs> When you give a talk about AA's history, you are at a distinct disadvantage for two reasons. One, some people hear history and they think, oh God, let me head for the door. This is going to be boring. The second thing is, is that history is a subjective view of several concurrent realities. And I have never given uh, this talk on AA's history and its context without learning something new. I am not an expert about AA. But I am a great beneficiary of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I've been a member of AA since the 1st of November of 1977. And I have, uh, I have known a good many people. I got sober in Richmond 25 years ago, and I was looking around the room, and there are one or two people who were in AA in, in uh, Richmond when I got here, but I, my history and the people that I hold very dear to my heart in this area are people who are, have gone before us now, Chuck Cheadle, Wallace Mangus, Ted Parklow. There are, these are guys that just uh, were tall oaks in this area. There are so many others, many of whom are alive, and if I, I don't want to just get their heads too big by mentioning them in this group, but these, were, these are people who made the program of AA very, very real to me. And I have loved being an AA member, and I still love being an AA member. And yes, I can trace my sponsorship links all the way back to Dr. Bob and to Bill because I've been in AA long enough to have had more than one sponsor. But I've gone and shot myself in the rear end here in the last few years. Um, when my last sponsor died, who was a very distinct link to Bill Wilson in New York, um, one of his other pigeons and I decided to sponsor one another, so we just broke the chain. Because if I'm sponsoring him and he's sponsoring me, we're not going very far. <laughs> but both of us have a great affection for the AA program. I have um, a reading list, and I'm just going to leave them up here. I printed enough for those that would like to have one. And I'm going to use it pretty much as my own outline. I also need to explain the reason for which I am interested in AA's history, not only because I am curious about it, but because I did some specific research on a graduate degree in American history a few years back, and my thesis topic was approximately, and I have it right here, um, why Alcoholics Anonymous necessarily separated from the Oxford group. And this dealt with a specific area of AA's history from about 1937 to 1941. In the course of doing that research for that, I came across a good many things and met a great many people. And I still get goosebumps when I think about some of the people whose company I've kept while I was doing the research and the contacts that I made. I'm still very, very excited about this, and, and AA's history continues to draw me on. I think to, to um, kind of preface again, one of the interests that I had about the AA program was its spiritual roots. There's a fellow who's written a good many books, Dick Burns, from, uh, and he lives in, in uh, Hawaii. He may be 
actually dead now. He was no <laughs> spring chicken when he began doing his research 10 or 12 years ago. Um, but uh, he wrote some excellent stuff trying to, you know, to, to lay a groundwork. And some of the titles that he had were The Akron Genesis of Alcoholics Anonymous. Another of his titles was The Oxford Group and Alcoholics Anonymous. You may see them around. They're, they're, most of them are soft-covered books, and they're bright yellow. And they're, they're Dick B's works. And some of the earlier stuff is better than some of the later stuff. I think he began to recycle some of his earlier works into later editions. And I'm not sure that the result was that salutary. But the first stuff that he came out with was really dynamite. Uh, he also had a great affection for AA as a spiritual program. And I think there's where some of my interest comes. I had a degree in theology. I was an ordained minister for 18 years, 15 of them as a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, so I was interested in the roots of AA's unique and rather universal spiritual appeal to men and women of all sorts of religious backgrounds or no religious background at all. How is it that, that uh, the God business could be served up to recalcitrant renegade drunks in a way that would save their lives without them ever realizing that they were on a bended knee. I just... <laughs> so, here was a matter of being led by example rather than being driven by mandate, and I thought that if it was probably if the churches could figure out how to do that, you wouldn't have, you'd have to build a bunch of them in a hurry. As it is, I think AA would stay ahead of them by renting their basements for at least one night a week. <laughs> and infuriating the hierarchy of multi-denominational worldwide organizations. <laughs> while simply saving us from death, destruction, and jail. So perhaps the motivation for which AA got started is as important as anything. I believe that AA is a Christian phenomenon. I read a book, and part of uh, my research was a book that was written by a fellow named, um, his name right out of my mind right here, and I'm hoping it's on here. Um, and it isn't by Jingo. I'll, it'll come to me. This gentleman wrote a book called AA, Cult or Cure. This guy's name was Buffet, Charles Buffet. He was from the Rational Emotive Behavioral Therapy Group in California, was uh, definitely a rational recovery type of individual who found that the whole notion of surrender to God was absolutely ridiculous. He also accused Alcoholics Anonymous of trying to pull the wool over all of its members' eyes by saying that it is not a religious organization and by trying to pass off as a bunch of uh, social hocus-pocus, very deeply spiritual beliefs. So therefore, I, after I got over wanting to f take a trip to New York or to California to finish his uh, story for him, uh, <laughs> I reread the book and came to discover that whatever he may have said about religious things, he had a hell of a lot of good things to say about AA's organizational structure and the, in, the ingenious way in which AA was dealt up to you and me. So, on the one hand, I hope Buffet makes a million bucks on his book, um, and um, I, I hope that he dies um, with administrations of a religious practitioner against his will. <laughs> um, 
But at any rate, all no resentments here. <laughs> so let me be very clear with you that AA comes out of a Protestant evangelical movement. It simply does. I mean, that's where AA does, owes its roots, not its allegiance, but certainly its roots. I need. I want to take you back almost decade by decade and to talk about some specific individuals who played a huge role in the development of AA. The first one that I want to talk about was a gentleman named Frank Nathaniel Daniel Buckman. Buckman was the founder of the, um, the Oxford Groups. And I wish to distinguish the difference between the Oxford Group movement and the Oxford movement. The Oxford movement was a phenomenon of the middle 19th century of high church Anglicans who came closer and closer to Roman Catholic roots. In fact, Cardinal Newman, who was a very high Roman Catholic thinker and philosopher and theologian of the late 19th century, began his life as an Anglican cleric. And as a result of his phenomenon in the Oxford movement, became Roman Catholic and arose to great heights. The Oxford group is a completely different bunch. The Oxford group is actually the outcome of Frank Buckman's strong sense of social justice within the Lutheran Church in the United States in the early 20th century. Buckman himself was a parent of very devoted, or was the son of very devoted Lutheran people of, of Pennsylvania, went on to become a Lutheran pastor and was ordained in 1901 and became the pastor of a very small inner-city Lutheran congregation. During the course of his studies, he began to think in terms of evangelizing to the young people and the young workmen and their children in, in his town up in Pennsylvania. And he started a social group that was both educational and social to teach all sorts of adult skills to literally slum-dwelling kids. As a result of uh, receiving a lot of financial assistance from the Lutheran Church, he set up a board of directors for his inner-city efforts. After several years, the board of directors cut his funding and literally nearly destroyed the man emotionally. He quit the ministry uh, of that church and uh, had a nervous breakdown, just quietly went off and came apart. His mother and father worried about him and put him on a boat for England, which is, I guess, a good thing to do with someone who's just had a nervous breakdown. <laughs> I will say that he eventually did end up on a slow boat to China, but more of that or not. <laughs> While he was attending a Protestant evangelical camp meeting and an annual convention of evangelicals in America, Canada, and Europe, it was called the Keswick Convention. The Catholic Conventions is still a phenomenon within Protestant evangelical circles, and it draws speakers from all over the world. It is still in existence. But Buckman attended this in 1908. The way Buckman describes what happened to him may in some ways remind you of some of the things that Bill Wilson said about himself. He was terribly bitter about the people who he felt had wronged him and had run him out of his tenement ministry. And he was attending the Catholic conference and happened into a chapel in the country. And a woman evangelist was talking about the passion of Christ on the cross. And she talked about it in such clear and compelling terms 
that on the spot Frank Buckman had another conversion experience. He said that the experience so convicted him that he felt as though he, he stood on a mountaintop and that the clean wind of the Spirit blew through him. These are precisely the words that Bill Wilson used to describe his own experience in December of 1934. There are reasons for Bill's use of those words. Buckman made a list of all the people on the board who had dumped on him, and he wrote each of them a letter. And he made a personal amends to each individual on that list. He also committed himself to serving others, and he also committed himself to a face-to-face person-to-person evangelical mission from that point on. Now, there are some things that were extremely important for AAs out of those three principles. Direct amends, one-on-one, face-to-face work, and service to others from that point on. And these principles we still see existing in AA. Soon after he came back to the States, Buckman got a job uh, as a campus minister, a YMCA minister, really, to a college in Pennsylvania. He moved on to a college in Connecticut, a theological college, and he began to gain some notoriety in the press. This, by this time, this is the early 20s. He was a very compelling man who believed that the only way to make religion or spiritual matters convincing was to go to individuals precisely where they were, not to stand behind a pulpit and talk to them about what they should do, but to go directly to people being who they were being and accepting them as they were. Two, he realized that most people that he would be dealing with knew less about religion than he did and he was not there to impress them with his knowledge. He was there to help them to make a decision about Christ precisely where they were. So what he did is that he would meet people, and apparently he was just a wonderfully engaging, charismatic, happy fellow. The photographs that I've seen of him, he was probably five, six, or five, seven. He was rotund. He, you could hardly consider him to be a physically appealing individual but because of his genuine interest in people, they came to him. He made terrific inroads in his work with college students. This was both good for Buckman and it was bad. Good for Buckman because he began to make a difference. Buckman also realized that he needed to appeal to men and women who were going someplace in this world. So he had a tendency to go to the Silver Spoon crowd. I don't think that that was necessarily what he intended to do, but that's the way it came across. He was, uh, he brought the message to the rich rather than to the poor. This got him into trouble later, and perhaps I can get back to that a little later on. Buckman also believed very strongly in engaging people and deepening of their prayer life immediately. And he had a technique whereby he could help people, as he said, to make a decision for Christ. He said, bring what you know of God to that encounter, and God will teach you to know yourself. Therefore, you did not need to have a very strong religious background to be exceedingly effective as a spiritual guide to others. And Buckman managed to bring that out very clearly. It was said of him that he got up very early in the morning and spent time in what was called quiet time. 
He did not even call it prayer and meditation or prayer time. He said quiet time because he felt that it had less strings attached to it of organized religion. And before long, Buckman had people getting up at four and five o'clock in the morning to come to his parlor where he left the door open to sit quietly in the room and meditate and pray over whatever they wanted to. Buckman also was a very, very strong believer in guidance that if we placed ourselves in the presence of a higher power, that that higher power would, over time, put reasonable and useful thoughts in our minds. But Buckman also realized that human beings, being who they are, might tend to accept certain notions more quickly than they would accept other notions. And so Buckman also uh, injected the idea of getting guidance from others to these thoughts that would come to them. We see it in the big book. We certainly see it talked about in the big book is that we come to rely upon these intuitions, but we test them. We also see some of the beginnings of sponsorship as AA practices it in the practice, not only of prayer and meditation and silence, but also checking our thinking with others. So we see some of the shadows of our AA program and what this man is doing in the early 20s. Now, Buckman also got himself in a bit of hot water. Any person who draws attention to themselves will also draw negative attention. And I spent a lot of time looking through microfiche and through microfilms in libraries to find articles that were very critical of the Oxford group. And there were some. And the, I don't know, I'm, I'm not here to say whether or not Buckman was a good guy or a bad guy. He was a man of his times and he did the best he could. But because he appealed to young college-age men, because these young college-age men often talked about sexual problems that they were having, and in the, you know, there's, things haven't changed a whole lot there, um, <laughs> that, uh, and, and uh, Buckman often would say to these people, these sins need to stop. And some people got a little bit angry with his decisions about their sex life and went off and talked to the press about it and hated Buckman ever after. But there were some others for whom Buckman had a terrific influence. Buckman uh, finally got out of campus ministry when the heat got on a little bit, and he decided that he wanted to take his mission not only into colleges but worldwide. The Lutheran Church was still his denomination of choice, and he had an opportunity to do some missionary work in China. And there he is on the slow boat to China. He goes to China where, the, uh, where his ideas were very, very much accepted by individuals in that culture, but there were also a group of young American seminary students who were in China at the same time Buckman was, and one of those individuals was a gentleman named Samuel Moore Shoemaker. And Dr. Sam Shoemaker eventually um, became Bill Wilson's mentor. And we'll get into that in a little bit. Buckman was fascinated by Shoemaker and Shoemaker by Buckman. Shoemaker was a young Episcopal seminary student. And when he was ordained, he accepted everything that Buckman had to say. Buckman was also quite unique for his time. The thought that a Lutheran could get along well with an Anglican was something rather unusual in the 20s. Um, most people stayed with their own denomination and thought all others to be rather, well, second-rate citizens. 
And so we see a, a, a level of ecumenism, which means interdenominationalism, without anybody trying to steal the other guy's congregation. We, saw, we see a great deal of that in the Oxford group principles from start to finish. We also see some of that in AA's very laissez-faire notion about your spiritual or religious beliefs. It was a very, very important fundamental um, concept of Alcoholics Anonymous and of the Oxford groups. Shoemaker was um, just a dynamo, and Buckman you knew how to use him well. Uh, Shoemaker was from a very wealthy Maryland family. Uh, his family still owns a plantation, literally a plantation, in, just outside of Owens Mills, Maryland. And Sam Shoemaker is buried in the Episcopal Churchyard in Owens Mills. Um, I, my own personal history and my own history and progression of alcoholism has something to do with that graveyard. Perhaps I have a moment to tell you about it at the end. <laughs> Long before I knew that Sam Schumacher was born or was buried there, I was drunk there. So, <laughs> déjà vu sometimes is not déjà vu. I was here before. Anyway. Um, but our, uh, Shoemaker was wealthy. He was very wealthy, and the family was um, sent him off to excellent schools, and he landed a very nice sort of inner-city uh, mission church in, in New York City. And he, like Buckman, also had a great devotion to the down-and-outers. And he opened up a mission that was several blocks away from his parish church. It was at this mission church that Bill Wilson made his first surrender while be between visits to Charles B. Towns Hospital in 1934. And, and I think that, that um, although, I mean, although uh, Shoemaker did not know Bill Wilson at that time, very soon after he did get to know Bill Wilson. If I could set just a little bit about the sort of the religious and the political structure of the 20s and the 30s, if we were to look at Buckman, who, having gotten go going in the 20s, that was the post-World War I era. This is a time of great um, sort of societal um, upsurge in our culture. This is the time of the 20s, the speakeasies, the prohibition, the rising interest in the stock market and buying on margin and terrific speculation. It was a time when Lindbergh, Charles A. Lindbergh, flew across the uh, Atlantic Ocean and became an overnight hero. It was a time when we saw the presidency of, of, um, of uh, Calvin Coolidge, who was a man who was a Republican and very, very committed to the financial upper echelons of our society. And it was the generation just before Herbert Hoover the minute he took, almost the minute he took over the presidency, had to deal with the aftermath of the um, stock market fall in October of 1929. This is also the time in which Bill Wilson was developing his career and working on his alcoholism. If you read the selection, Bill's story in the big book, you'll see that Bill had served in the Coast Artillery during World War I and had gone to England. He returned home and went to law school. He decided that he, uh, I, the way I tell this, he, he was a lawyer, by the way. He just never passed the bar. <laughs> <laughs> he, uh, 
he decided that he wanted to be a financial wizard instead, and so he got into stock speculating. The thought of him being a stockbroker is a little bit too highfalutin for Bill Wilson. He was literally a shyster with a stock with stock certificates, and he made a lot of money for himself, and he made a lot of easy money for a lot of other people, but he was at that same time developing his own alcoholism. He was married to a very nice lady, and uh, she she waited through the war. Well, I mean, they got married just before the war, went before he went overseas, and she stuck with him right up to the time he died in 1971. She was a marvelous and very, very energetic lady, but she loved him probably more than he deserved to be loved. Um, Bill Wilson says in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous that extreme drunkenness and good fortune have kept him out of many marital infidelities, but that's not entirely true. <laughs> Lois Wilson waited for him and he literally devoted her life to him. She was unable to have his children. She made him really her, her great mission in life, uh, but she was a very well-educated and well-schooled woman and quite a lady. And I don't think that anyone ever wanted to mention to Lois what they really knew of Bill, because they would not have done that to a woman of that magnitude and of her graciousness. But Bill Wilson was, in all, for all intents and purposes, a rotten drunk. You hear him talk about it in reasonably cogent phraseology in the big book, how he would crawl home in the pre-dawn hours, for, and he would have to go to all-night places in order to get a few bottles of beer. What you don't hear, but what you do read about in the book Pass It On and uh, Thompson's um, Bill W. and other stories about Bill is, is that he was inclined to go out and run all night long and wake up all covered with blood and puke in his own at the bottom of the basement stairs of his own townhouse. He was a lush of the first water although we see him pretty well quite washed and dusted off, I think it's good for us alcoholics to remember that Bill Wilson was a human being. Let us not make an idol out of him. Let's not make some sort of a plaster saint out of this guy. He was a guy that went as far down as any drunk can go and probably further than some of us went. So Bill Wilson certainly knew the booze racket right away. He, was, he stole from his wife, he sneaked off, he lied, he tried to get people to do things for him, he manipulated his environment to the best of his ability. No different than us. <laughs> Bill Wilson ended up going to treatment. It, uh, the, the tally varies between three and four times, depending on who you're talking to or who you're reading. I tend toward the, the four hospitalizations theory myself. Um, Bill Wilson ended up being put in uh, a drying out joint that was um, run by Charles B. Town. Really what uh, Father Hillary Draper used to call a, a gold-plated souse trap. And he was there more than once. They tried various ways of appealing to Bill Wilson, but there was no appealing to Bill Wilson's ego. Bill Wilson would get himself out. He would think, I've got the booze racket beat. He would get back on the hustle, and the next thing you know, he'd end up drunk. But a buddy of his didn't have it quite so good, and that was Abby Thatcher. Abby Thatcher and Bill Wilson had been great school chums up in um, Vermont, and uh, Abby was quite, um, quite an interesting fellow that showed up in Bill's life at various times. Um, there is a story where Bill Wilson and Abby Thatcher decided to be the first people to land at a small airport up in a New Hampshire town, so they chartered a flight. Both they, they got drunk and the pilot got drunk, and um, 
they got lost, and uh, the entire city, or uh, bands and the whole city council, were all waiting for the plane when it landed. Bill, Abby, and the pilot all climbed out of the plane and forthwith fell on their face in front of the entire group of people for the inauguration of this new, this new airport. This is Abby Thatcher, Bill's former drinking buddy. Abby had been pretty well, was going to be committed, that's what it came down to, and some people from the Oxford group went out and sprung him, that's what they did, and they sent him back home to just to see if he couldn't get sober. And you know something, this is a very interesting phenomenon of Bill's life. Abby did not stay sober. Abby Thatcher had a terrible time with sobriety, and there are various times when, um, um, I have a tape of Abby in 1955 at the St. Louis Convention, I have another tape of him just before he died. He was living in Texas when he died. Bill Wilson was his pigeon all the way through. Bill always spoke of Abby as being his sponsor. Bill always underwrote Abby to some extent and gave him money when he could. Bill never forgot how grateful he was that Abby had made that first call on him. He never got over it. And I think that in some ways we AAs could take a, uh, take a leaf out of that history is to be grateful for what happened to us and to try to the best of our extent to pay back through service what somebody did for us. Bill Wilson never forgot Abby Thatcher and he loved him to the day he died and to the day he himself passed away. Bill, uh, here's the message, and it's talked about very clearly in Bill's story. It's talked about very clearly and um, pass it on. It's talked about very clearly in uh, AA Comes of Age. These are books that you can acquire at your home group. So wonderful stories. I also like to say that the only reason that I'm asked to stand up in front of you is because I've read these books. <laughs> if you read these books, somebody will ask you to stand up here too. The 30s were a tough time. Our nation was in a terrible state financially. I mean, we just didn't have a pot to piss in or a window to throw it out for about six or seven years in this country. The only reason that people's homes were safe is because Roosevelt was elected president and he stopped the foreclosure of mortgages in this country. That's the only reason Dr. Bob Smith still had a house to live in. And because Roosevelt literally saved his house for him by saying you will not foreclose on the mortgages of individuals who borrowed money from your bank. Because your bank is no more secure than the people that you loan money to, so let's get over that right now. There will be no foreclosures. And it probably in some ways d developed a way of looking at national rejuvenation in a way that um, we're still experiencing today. We still have some of the echoes of that type of social thinking today. At that time, it was unbelievably welcome. You know, at the same time that Bill Wilson was in his shape, Dr. Bob Smith out in Akron, Ohio, was getting in the same shape. Dr. Bob Smith was born probably 200 miles from where Bill Wilson was born, maybe even less. These two fellows are a couple of Yankees, a couple of Vermonters. Um, Bill Wilson settled in New York. Dr. Bob Smith ended up in Akron, Ohio. Dr. Bob Smith had attended Dartmouth College, which is still famous as a drinking school, and uh, he, he, he said he mastered the, that level of curriculum. He, <laughs> he took a couple of years off and then went to the University of Michigan to study medicine. He drank himself out of the University of Michigan, and when he came to himself, he ended up in Rush College in Chicago. Uh, Dr. Bob calls it another leading institution in America, but 
Have you ever heard of Rush College? <laughs> he graduated with an MD. Dr. Bob was a proctologist. A drunken proctologist is a dangerous individual. <laughs> I have a feeling that the University of Michigan did not want it on its conscience or to its credit that it had turned loose a drunken proctologist. Dr. Bob drank, and he drank a lot. He was also a very well thought of surgeon in the city of Akron. To his credit, he would not operate if he'd been drinking too much. He would not see patients if he'd been drinking too much. In the latter three or four years of his uh, drinking career, he saw very few patients. In 1933, uh, which was the year that Roosevelt was elected to the presidency of this country, that was in November of 33. But in 1933, in January, the Oxford Group, which did this by this time become a nationwide phenomenon, made a visit to the city of Akron because the son and heir of a local millionaire was sobered up on a train ride out to Denver, Colorado to the Episcopal Church Conference by members of the Oxford Group, and the daddy of this individual decided to invite the Oxford Group to come take over all the pulpits of the city of Akron for a week in January of 1933. And there were several individuals who were in the congregation. Two of them, which are very important, were a woman named Henrietta Cyberling, who was the daughter-in-law of another rich um, tire millionaire, and her buddy, Ann Smith. Anne and Henrietta had their heads together about how to help Dr. Bob get over drinking. And they were not doing any, they were not having much luck. Dr. Bob, very much like Bill Wilson, was terribly shy of things religious, very skeptical of them, did not want much to do with them. But Dr. Bob was having a tough time with the drinking business and despite all of his efforts, was losing. So he then was willing to listen to his wonderful wife, Anne, and to Henrietta Cyberling, who was not so wonderful, but was certainly vocal. <laughs> they began to pray for old Bob, and they got Bob going to the Oxford group meetings that were held at various places throughout the city of Akron. Dr. Bob decided to join the Episcopal Church. He and Anne were attending the church of Dr. Walter Tunks in the city of Akron. Uh, Dr. Bob could not get sober. They prayed with him, they prayed at him, they prayed over him. And Dr. Bob, as good as he was, stayed drunk. It wasn't that he was being um, oppositional, it's just that the man simply could not see where the spiritual part and the drinking part came together. In uh, November and December of 1934, Bill Wilson was visited by Ebby Thatcher and went to Charles B. Towns Hospital for the next of the last and then the last time. And in that time, Ebby visited Bill and brought to him the very simple program of the Oxford Groups. And he told Bill, Bill, you just come up with your own notion of this God business, whatever works for you. And Bill bought that. And he had his, as he called it ever after, hot flash experience. He said that he felt as though he stood on the mountain top and the wind of the truth blew through him. And he said that he was changed from that point on. And Bill went on the Oxford Group Sawdust Trail along with with uh, Sam Shoemaker. There is some question as to whether 
Shoemaker, or whether Bill Wilson ever met Frank Buckman, I've never been able to find any knowledge of a meeting between those two fellows. Buckman denied it because Buckman found that AA was really kind of small change when compared to his worldwide movement. We'll get into that right next. Bill and Bob get together in Akron when Bob, when Bill goes out to try to win a stock proxy battle over a small machine tools company. He is in the Mayflower Hotel. Is there anybody here who's ever been to Akron to the Mayflower Hotel? Just a, it's just like being, you know, where it all began, is in that lobby. Bill comes down to the lobby. There's a bar. There's a church directory. They're within eyesight of one another. He went to the church directory. Who would he have called because of his experience at the Episcopal Church in New York? He called the Episcopal Church in Akron. Walter Tunks understood the Oxford group. Walter Tunks gave him a list of names to call. Henrietta Cyberling invited him to come over because she had been pray praying so much for Dr. Bob that she felt that Bill was an answer from God, guided to her to help Dr. Bob. She then gets Dr. Bob and Bill together in the same room, and there it is, the strike that became Alcoholics Anonymous. These two men meet one another. And Dr. Bob says, quite frankly, that Bill Wilson brought him something that no other person had ever brought him. Bill Wilson, and there's a pamphlet that's called out that talks, last talks of our co-founders. Also, there's a very interesting tape that, that, that Dr. Bob made in the city of Detroit in 1948 in which he outlines precisely what it was that Bill said to him that no one else had ever said. Bill brought to him the notion of service to others, selfless giving to others, and that's what made the difference to Dr. Bob. Dr. Bob then went out, and we have the story of his last beer, which Bill gave him on his way to do a proctological surgical procedure. And apparently all went well. <laughs> Dr. Bob went out and began to make his amends forthwith. Came back to the house and never had another drink until he died in 1950. He and Bill stayed together for three months, both of them very active in the Oxford groups. Bill returns to New York, very, very active in the Oxford group. Shoemaker knew that he had an excellent speaker on his hands in Bill Wilson, and Bill and Lois were both very much on the evangelical trail with the Oxford groups. And in those years, or in those months and years, Bill was very definitely spoke out of a Christian perspective. Trouble happened, though, between the Oxford group and Alcoholics and, or, and, and Bill Wilson, and, uh, and trouble happened in this country with the Oxford group, and they happened almost at the same time. And this is where the thesis of my his, history uh, thesis took off. In 1936, remember now, Roosevelt was, re was elected in 1933. In 1933, in January, Adolf Hitler was proclaimed the Chancellor of Germany, and within a matter of months had made himself the dictator of Germany. And he immediately began to back up the Treaty of Versailles, which had ended the First World War. He began to militarize Germany. He began to open up whole avenues of world conquest. It was not long before the democracies in the world began to be deeply concerned about Hitler. Well, Bachmann hated the Bolshevists, the Russians, the communists, because they were godless, anti-Christian peoples. Frank Bachmann in the New York Times is quoted as having said, thank God for a man like Adolf Hitler, who was thrown up a great bulwark against godless communism. Well, frankly, Hitler did. Hitler himself was a Roman Catholic, by the way.
way, although not a terribly uh, practicing one. <laughs> Though, having known a few bishops, I wonder. <laughs> However, um, he did he did throw up a bulwark against communism, and communism was atheistic, and Buckman was definitely Christian. So anybody who was a friend of, or was an enemy of the communists must be a friend to the Christians, which of course is fallacious reasoning for all sorts of reasons. But in 1936, Hitler walked into the Rhineland, and, and, or into the Ruhr in the Rhineland, and took it over again. It had been demilitarized by the French at 1918. He also began purposely excluding Jews from any social or political or governmental position in Germany. He began to speak about remilitarization and the establishment of the Luftwaffe, which was the German Air Force, which the Germans had hidden in Russia for several years anyway. However, you begin to see this, and the democracies are now worried. England is worried because they're only 20 miles from all this stuff. France is scared to death because they had their ass whipped by the Germans twice in a century. <laughs> Russia is terrified because Germany had made an armistice with Russia in 1918 before the war was over, in 1917 before the war was over, and the terms were very negative to Russia. The only people that weren't afraid of Hitler was Mussolini. And frankly, he was a little afraid of him too. And so here you have Buckman starting to roll this stuff out in 1936 about Hitler being a good guy in America where Hitler was definitely not a good guy. Wilson was aware of this. Now, Wilson hated Franklin Delano Roosevelt with a purple passion. I'm surprised that he didn't throw in with Buckman on, on that one. <coughs> well, figure it out. Wilson had made all his money under Republican administrations. And here was a guy who was giving it all away. And it was stopping you know, the, the money flow to the wealthy. And so, uh, although you never heard anything about Wilson's political feelings, it's because he chose not to talk about them. Wilson was also very committed to Christ during those years. Dr. Bob Smith was deeply committed to Christ in Akron, Ohio. In May of 1937, though, Bill Wilson had begun to realize that although the Oxford group was bent on worldwide evangelism, Bill Wilson had a primary purpose, and that was to work with the still-suffering alcoholic. So he set up the alcoholic squad of the Oxford group, which irked a lot of the Oxford groupers because, first of all, the drunks weren't high enough in the social scale. Second of all, Bill was doing something independently of the group initiative. Third of all, Bill was not following the guidelines. Fourth of all, Bill was separating himself from his own guidance and direction in the Oxford group. And the word got out and Bill heard about it. And Bill then, in 1937, pulled this alcoholic squadron out of the Oxford groups. Now, he did it for two excellent reasons. One, the Oxford group is getting a lot of bad press. Two, if we're going to be effective with drunks, we have to get shed of this Oxford group stigma. And Bill Wilson did that to the day he died. 
You don't see anything about the actual group in the first 164 pages of the big book. You do see some mention of it later on in the prefaces and the forewords to the various editions, but you don't see a damn thing about the Oxford group specifically in the original text of AA. And it was my contention, and no one has refuted it to date, that Bill Wilson wrote the big book because he knew that AA needed its own independent, separate literature in order to break fully with the Oxford group. Dr. Bob, on the other hand, in Akron, was very, very much into staying with the Oxford group because he had many friends who were an Oxford grouper and he didn't see the big deal. And it wasn't until 1939 that Dr. Bob pulled the Akron group out of the Oxford group and it created a terrific amount of problems for these men. They were personal problems because of affections that they had established. Some of the uh, people that I spoke with uh, about this when I was writing my thesis were uh, Sam Shoemaker's wife, his widow, Helen Smith Shoemaker, and one of Sam Shoemaker's daughters. And I, I remember the conversation I had with his daughter. The old lady, uh, Helen Smith Shoemaker, would not speak about any of that stuff. She simply would not. She said, I refuse to talk about it. Well, what she didn't realize is that she'd written about it in 19, about 1970 or 71 when she wrote a book about her husband. And there were an entire chapter about why the Oxford group broke up in 1941 and Shoemaker moved, removed himself from it. It was for precisely the reason that Bill Wilson pulled out in 37 and Dr. Bob pulled out in 39 and Samuel Shoemaker pulled up out in 1940 and 41. It's because of the political power that the Oxford group was attempting to gather to itself and its mission had changed from face-to-face -face work with other people to worldwide evangelism and they were coming up with some pretty cockamamie stuff. In fact, Buckman put it to Sam Shoemaker that he wanted him to leave the Episcopal Church and become a full-time Oxford grouper, which again broke one of the original premises of the Oxford group, is that it would be an ecumenical movement and people could retain their own denominational identification. In the end, Buckman said, I want you to be Oxford group, Oxford group, and only Oxford group. Bill Wilson saw that when they started talking about the drunks are only one part of this, you need to subjugate yourself to us and to the common goal. Well, you know the drunks. They weren't going to listen to a bunch of... Well, in fact, um, there was one conversation that I had with a lady in this area, in Virginia, whose first um, meeting with uh, anything to do with sobriety was through the Oxford group. And um, she spoke about... Uh, when I asked her, I said, did the Oxford group have any effect on your drinking? She said they were nothing but a bunch of goddamn Christers. <laughs> I think that was an opportunity missed. <laughs> At any rate, the Oxford group was beginning to lose its appeal, it was beginning to get involved in world politics, and it was beginning to lose sight of itself. Bill Wilson, at that time, was beginning to focus on the side of what AA needed to do, and he saw that that primary purpose was absolutely essential, and we still have that in our traditions today. Bill Wilson focused everything on the drunk, the drunk, the drunk, period. He did not focus on the hows, he focused on the who. And then he helped them to develop the how. And that was Bill Wilson's focus then, and it came directly out of the Oxford Group experience. Bill Wilson also, uh, in the 1940s, when we went to war, Bill Wilson got a chance to see AA at work. He got to see AA... Um, 
succeeding even without the uh, express permission of its original founders. And the AA Big Book was an, an extremely important part of that. And I think that he, and he hoped when he said it that a person armed with this book may go into any distant community and make a tremendous difference. Bill did not know when he wrote that in 1934 that that was precisely what, or 1938, that that was 37 it is, that this is precisely what was going to happen. That this small chip of a book would be floated out into the sea of alcoholism and it would have terrific impact on people's lives from that point on. I think Bill Wilson was as surprised as anybody else that AA took off the way it did. One of the things that Bill Wilson also recognized, and he took AA away from influence of an individual's ego, Buckman was a good man. Did you know that the uh, Oxford group still exists? In 1938 it changed its name to the Moral Rearmament, and the moral rearmament still exists. They have a website. You tap it in any of your servers. Moral rearmament. Bam! It'll be right there for you. It still exists. There are people still in the Asher group who knew all the principles that I just spoke about. They're very old now, but they knew these people. They knew Shoemaker. They knew Buckman. And there are, um, one, they're dying off rapidly now. But when I began this research on this thing some 10 years ago, there were a bunch of them still out there, and I had access to a few of them. So the Oxford group still exists. And so I think when AA says, well, nanny, nanny, poo-poo, you know, we did it right and they did it wrong. Well, in effect, we did and they did too. Uh, but I think that as, you know, as we see ourselves, let's not put ourselves up on any pedestal above these groups. Let's recognize the grateful contribution that they made to our sobriety today. I think in some ways when I talk and, and bring some of this stuff up, I want you to recognize that many of the things that we do in AA today are done almost in the spirit of the Oxford group, and we owe them a debt of gratitude for that. We also see the reasoning behind it. So when people come in and say, well, I don't want to do this stuff, you know, where do they get to come up with this crap about the big book? Well, the crap about the big book is probably what saved this organization and put this organization on the map. When people talk about sponsorship, hey, I don't need a sponsor. Well, yes, you, you know, you, well, you probably don't if you don't want one, but you'll be back if you live. <laughs> And then maybe sponsorship will look a whole lot better to you. <laughs> we are self-supporting through our own contributions, and we don't want power or authority because we don't want to misuse power and authority and get off on the track, on wild tracks. We are an organization that is actually the inverted pyramid, and I believe that in, in essence AA works hard to do that, that the real power is at where there are the most people, and that is in the local groups, and that each group is autonomous, except in matters affecting other groups or AA as a whole. You're going to have candlelit groups, you can have men's groups, you can have gay groups, you can have straight groups, you can have women's groups, you can have young people's groups. You can have any old kind of group you want, because Bill Wilson in 1937 had to haul the whole outfit out of New York away from the Oxford group because they wouldn't let them practice the principles in the way that were most effective to the people he was working with. And Bill Wilson never forgot that. Several years ago, I was giving a talk at the Ohio Young People in AA Convention. And frankly, folks, um, I haven't looked any younger since I got into AA. So, and I was dressed about like I'm dressed now, and I walked into this hotel lobby in, in Ohio, and it was the damnedest thing I ever saw in my life. I mean, there were leather and chains and tattoos and miles and miles of skin hanging off of every single 
piece of furniture in the place, <laughs> hair of every imaginable color, enough holes knocked in these people to make them all look like colanders, and I'm <laughs> It has never been my wont to suffer pain to look different. You know, it just never. <laughs> and I'm walking in here with my suitcases, just about like this, looking at it like this. And my wife says, "I wonder what Bill Wilson is thinking right now." And I said, "I said I bet he's just happy as hell that these people are here." And in the course of that time, after I've given my kind of weak lead, I mean, there were some kids that in 11 had done more stuff than I did by the time I was 30. And uh, <laughs> through no fault of my own, it's just that some of that stuff wasn't around when I got sober. But, um, I mean, these young people were coming up and literally laying their head on my chest and saying, I can identify with you. I identify. We share, we share experience, strength, and hope. And I'm thinking to myself, oh, my God. You know, they're right. They're absolutely right. And they're right because of the history that we share. Now, let me say a word about the history that we're writing today. AA is going to persist. It's going to be all right. It's going to be different than the way it was. I've been in AA for a quarter of a century. If I stay in AA for another five years, I'll have been in AA half my life. And has AA undergone some changes? I'm not sure it has. You know, but I'm not afraid. I'm not the least bit afraid. There's a several reasons why. One, as long as there are people around who believe that the book is important to us and that it is the textbook of people and members of this fellowship, this fellowship is going to be okay. Because the people who are in the know are always going to offer experience and strength and hope to people who aren't. Two, if we can continue with the spirit of service in AA, even the most radical, rebellious renegade will eventually realize that sublimating that self-will is the way that they will save their own lives and the way that they're going to save other people's lives. Three, AA is, is mercilessly democratic. You try to pull any really kinky shit in AA and somebody's going to get you. <laughs> coming from. <laughs> it isn't going to be Methuselah in the back row with moss on his back. It could be a 16-year-old kid who says, get over yourself. <laughs> you could convince a great many people of a great many things in AA, but you can never convince people that your way's the way. The AA way becomes our way of dealing with the world. Now, I live in a family where I am the only member of Alcoholics Anonymous. My wife is a member of a 12-step organization, but we never, ever do anything but discuss the steps in generic fashion in my home. I have two children who see Daddy go to meetings, and that's all those little ones need to know. In fact, I've gotten one who went to her first meeting and made it through the whole hour here about three weeks ago. And that's because I followed the example of other AAs with small children and packed enough crap in a carry-all bag. <laughs> that it took her 45 minutes to get to the bottom of the things. 
I'll also say this about AA. AA is an endless progression of personal growth. You know, now this is some of the stuff that I think the history of AA, and I hope that your history will be exactly the same. That when you got to AA, you aren't that person today. That person is still there someplace. And if you want to go back to drinking, you can find them in a hurry. But we're not the people we were when we got in AA. We're at a different place than we were when we got in AA. And if we're living this program a day at a time, and we're doing the best we can, every opportunity that AA offers is going to be there for us. And we will be the history of AA. Now, I was driving back from a meeting here several weeks ago, and I was, it was in a distant town, and I was riding with a fellow that I sponsor, and the guy got into sobriety. I don't know, he's been probably sober 17, 18 years now. And we were driving up the road, and he said, you know, we don't see many of the old-timers in the meetings anymore. And I flipped down the sun visor, and there's a mirror on it. And I said, take a look. <laughs> and his next words I thought were wonderful. Jesus Christ, do you think those... <laughs> do you think those guys knew as little as I do? <laughs> yeah, they did. They knew as little as we do, and there is no popes nor pontifex maximus nor presidents of Alcoholics Anonymous. We are all people who are trudging a road of happy destiny, and we are all people who I think are some of the luckiest individuals on the face of this earth. I want you to pass it on. I, I've got, like I say, it's a one list. I've got, I don't know, 75 copies of this. Some of the stuff that's on this list, you can get at your home group. Some of the stuff that's on this list, you can't get at your home group. But if you tap in and you start putting these names down, uh, you can find them. Probably Amazon.com. You can get a lot of these books from Amazon.com. I'm not, I'm not going to make any particular recommendation uh, outside of the big book and the 12 and 12, but then pass it on. And Dr. Bob and the Good Old Timers and AA Comes of Age. I think these are just ingenious volumes. I've read them uh, probably a dozen times each. There's another one that is not uh, that, that I hope you don't find a conference-approved literature rack, and that's Ernest Kurtz, Not God, A History of Alcoholics Anonymous. That's the book that put me on the, the road to understanding more about um, uh, more about fellowship. Uh, it's one of those books where you have two bookmarks. You have a bookmark where you're reading, and you have a bookmark where the footnotes lead you, because sometimes the footnotes are just as are just as uh, are enlightening and as uh, explosive and as uh, fun as the text of the book. Kurtz, um, I did a great, great service to me. I've had the pleasure of meeting him. I also would say that, um, um, that in this town, there are people in AA who just loom larger than life. Um, please get to know those individuals. They're not going to be with you forever. And then I want you to learn as much as you can from them, because someday you're going to be the old AA fart. And you may as well, you may as well know from whence you came. Thank you very much for your patience and your attention.